Welcome to Yale Cancer Center Answers with your hosts, Drs. Anish Chagpar, Susan Higgins, and Stephen Gore. Dr. Chagpar is Associate Professor of Surgical Oncology and Director of the Breast Center at Smilo Cancer Hospital. Dr. Higgins is Professor of Therapeutic Radiology and of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Sciences. And Dr. Gore is Director of Hematological Malignancies at Smilo and an expert on myelodysplastic syndromes. Yale Cancer Center Answers features weekly conversations about the research, diagnosis, and treatment of cancer. And if you'd like to join in, you can email your questions and comments to canceranswers at yale.edu, or you can leave a voicemail message at 888-234-4YCC. This week, it's a conversation about urogynecology with Dr. Leslie Rickey. Dr. Rickey is Associate Professor of Urology and of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Sciences at Yale School of Medicine. Here's Dr. Stephen Gore. Boy, that's a lot of um, uh, adjectives in your name, in your title here. Urology, maybe it's nouns, urology, obstetrics, gynecology, reproductive sciences. Couldn't you think of a few more that you could have added in there? Well, you know, the, the pelvic floor is a funny place. It has... Uh, or the, the pelvis in general in a female. You have the bladder, you have the reproductive organs, you have the rectum and, and colorectal um, function. And so for a long time, care, care of a women's pelvic floor was sort of fractionated and separated between urology, gynecology, colorectal services. So now this female, this long-term uh, female pelvic medicine and reconstructive surgery is actually uh, an effort to cross-train people uh, from these backgrounds so they can provide more comprehensive uh, global care for, for the female pelvic floor. Well, interesting. So, you know, when I think of urology, uh, first of all, I usually think of guys because <laughs> it seems like a really you know, male-directed field, but I realize that that's just misogynist on my part and everything, but... It's you know, common. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, coming with, you know, with the male equipment, that's kind of where I come from, I'm sorry to say. Uh, but I think of, you know, kidneys, ureters, bladder, urethra. That's kind of traditionally what I've... Prostate, I guess, for sure. So... Um, and of course, that's just my male perspective. Um, but it sounds like you're dealing regionally uh, rather than sort of um, what organ systems wise. Is that right? This pelvic floor thing. No, that's absolutely correct. And I think, um, you know, women in particular, because of, because of their pelvic floor, because of uh, childbearing and the stress and, and trauma that can result on the pelvic floor, that these pelvic floor disorders, especially lower urinary tract disorders, which can be incontinence or frequent urination, um, uh, disproportionately affect women. So men can have these symptoms too, but women experience them far more often. So, and the bladder doesn't live in isolation. For a long time, it was treated that way. But I mean, and that's one of the things I love about my training is the majority of women that show up with a urinary complaint, up to 80% will have another pelvic floor symptom or disorder that if not appropriately treated or, or thought about in the treatment plan, you can actually treat one thing and make something else worse. So I think it is critical for women to go to somebody that sort of, that has this training uh, so that the full spectrum of all their pelvic floor issues can be dealt with, you know, one place or at least someone that has the training to appreciate 
um, some of these disorders and, and send them out to referrals. You know, we have a great multidisciplinary team here at Yale. Uh, between urology, gynecology, and colorectal services, we share many patients. We have conferences so that we try to really coordinate their care and make sure it's, it's being dealt with in a thoughtful way. Let's backtrack a minute because, you know, I remember as a medical student studying anatomy, I found the pelvic floor incredibly difficult to get my head around. And my guess is that most of our listeners don't even know what we mean when we say pelvic floor. That's just my guess. So could, could you explain to somebody as, as simple as I, simple as me, simple as I, whatever, uh, what the pelvic floor is exactly? Sure. So uh, what I tell my patients is that it's a bowl of muscles, nerves, connective tissue that goes from uh, pubic bone back to tailbone and hip to hip. It's a little more complex than that, but yeah. that it's a bowl of muscles. And you know, when if you really have to go to the bathroom and you're not near a bathroom and you do that 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 contraction, those pelvic floor muscles to hold it in. You yes, mean. yeah, to hold it in. We you know, the, the got to go, got to go. Right. So that's the pelvic floor. That's the those are the pelvic floor muscles that you're squeezing. So. Um, just, just like, you know, you might go to the gym to build up your biceps like these or, or they might get weak or, so, you know, people have all different sorts of muscle tone. I often compare it to the biceps because everybody knows what a curl is and they can understand uh, weakness or strength or, you know, pain in those areas. And so that's how I tend to describe the pelvic floor. And those muscles are uh, very much related uh, to the function of the and health of the bladder, the vagina, and, and the rectum. So you can just imagine when there's something wrong with these muscles, the you know sort of uh, uh, chaos or untoward effects that can result in the bladder, the rectum, and the vagina. And so, as I am thinking, I remember. So the bladder sits on top of the pelvic floor. Yes, that's right. But the vagina passes through. Well, the, no? so the right, right, so the bladder and the vagina and the rectum sit on the pelvic floor, but they all have openings, right? So then the urethra, the vagina, and then uh, the the bottom of the rectum or the anus actually passes through the pelvic floor. So if those muscles are weak, you can get urine leakage, bowel leakage, vaginal hernias. If they are too tight, sometimes actually people have trouble um, emptying their bladder or their bowel. They can even develop pain. Um, so there's just a whole spectrum of symptoms that can result from disorders in the nerves and muscles in this area. And you're saying that these problems are mostly uniquely female? Not uniquely female. So, so men can have the, men have pelvic floor too. They just don't have a vagina <laughs> and aren't usually aren't delivering the bowling balls, you know, through the vaginal opening. So, uh, they can still absolutely duck pin balls, right? Yeah, yes, yes, yeah, big big ones. So, uh, while they can have obviously issues with pain in the pelvic floor, uh, bladder and bowel issues, uh, they don't tend to happen in the numbers that they affect women. For, women report these symptoms more when you look at large population studies and more severe symptoms typically. Uh -huh. and, and what percentage of women actually have problems with, uh, I guess, stress incontinence? That would be one of the things, I yeah. suppose, or things like that? Yeah, so, so uh, urine leakage and urinary tract issues are the most common of the pelvic floor disorders. And one in three women will report a a bothersome problem with their bladder, whether it's leakage or, or voiding too much. Uh, however, very few or less than half of women with moderate 
to severe symptoms, report them. Mm-hmm. So if you if you look at a doctor's office and how many people, you know, you look at the diagnoses and you say, eh, you know, not that many people have it, but when you do a large population study and you ask the specific questions, do you have this and does it bother you, then the numbers come out a lot higher. So one in three, these symptoms also increase in prevalence or frequency and severity of the issue as women age and the nerves and muscles change. So, you know, as far as we understand, even women early, in their early 20s, these are not diseases of older age exclusively, hmm. even women in their 20s, up to 10% will report an issue. And then it goes up and up and up until you get to over 50% of women that are over 60 might have these issues. Mm-hmm. And is it mostly limited to people who have born children uh, vaginally? That is a risk factor. That That's a risk factor across all pelvic floor disorders, whether you look at bowel disorders, vaginal support issues, or prolapse, and urinary symptoms. However, that doesn't mean if you haven't ever had kids or only had C-sections that you're not going to get these. I mean, I, I see these issues in, in young women uh, even earlier than 20, and then I see them up through women in their 80s. So while many women have um, had ch- vaginal childbirth or have been pregnant and have these issues, you're not protected from it necessarily um, if, if you haven't. Seems like this uh, pelvic floor thing was not well designed somehow if we have all these problems. I don't know. Well, if you think about it, <laughs> I've heard it explained this way. The, the pelvic floor muscles were originally apparently used to, for, for tails. They were never meant to support two-legged animals with, uh, you know, with, with all the things that come around pregnancy and childbirth. So right. Uh, makes sense to me. Not sure completely how true it is. It, but the thing is, it not every. So this is another funny thing. Some women just think they don't talk about it to their friends. They don't report it to their doctor. They just assume that everybody has it. It's yeah, right. It's normal. You can see they it on just, TV. Yeah, you, you see it on got TV. Those uh, adult the diaper pads, things, right? They think it is absolutely a normal part of aging, and it's an inevitable part of aging. And part of the message I like to get out, whether I'm talking to primary care physicians or to women in the community, that just because it's common doesn't make it normal. And there are many women that don't have these issues. I mean, there are, I mean, the people, everybody in my office has it. And I said 25%, you know, 25% of women 18 years and older will have some problem. One in three women have some sort of urine leakage issue, but there are many women that don't. So the women that do have it, um, you know, I really would like to empower them to bring it up to their own doctor, talk to your friends about it. It's not a bad thing. It's just a chronic issue, just like having high blood pressure or diabetes. And if you talk to your primary care physician or you're embarrassed to bring it up, look look up a specialist. There are many, many more people specialing in pelvic floor disorders right now. You can just make that appointment, come in to talk to somebody. It doesn't mean everyone, someone's going to stick you with the needle or do some tests on you, but you should absolutely come in, get checked out, there are a lot of very conservative, non-surgical lifestyle modifications that can make a huge difference in these symptoms. Hmm. So I've got to ask you, Leslie, you know, I'm just guessing that you didn't sort of wake up one day before you went to medical school and said, gee, I'm going to be a, I really want to be a pelvic floor specialist of a urogynecologic nature. And how does, seriously. Right. No, that's I mean, true. It never occurred to me, right? Yeah. Uh, where, yeah, well, I guess being a hematologist probably didn't either. But but I'm, I'm just wondering, like, what's your path there? How, how does one 
end up in, and what kind of training is involved? It seems like it's uh, across several disciplines, as you mentioned. Yeah, that's right. So I, um, I mean, I went into urology. I never thought I was going to be a surgeon. That was way off my radar. I thought I was going to be a pediatrician at first, but I, I got into the OR and the surgical field and, and really fell in love with it and uh, really enjoyed urology, which, like you said, the perception out there is that it's mostly male. Um, it, it, However, there are very, you know, up to a third or 40% of urologic patients are women, actually. But I really more liked the disorders we were treating, all the different uh, surgical and non-surgical things you could do for pelvic disorders, whether they're in men or women. Truth be told, though, I never thought I was going to be a female urologist treating exclusively women. Um, And in fact, I thought as a female in urology, you can imagine only about 8% of practicing urologists are women. Right. So if you go into a practice, you know, a community practice, you are going to be really flooded um, with requests for women. Oh, I see. see I thought you were going to say that the guys don't want to see you. Maybe, maybe there's pushback from the guys. No, I know. You know, I never had that issue. Really? I I really didn't. No, no. They, um, I, I think when you, I mean, these are pretty sensitive disorders, um, and so I have a lot of, you know, women, even women talking to a female, very embarrassed to bring it up, you know, very, uh, they apologize. I mean, it's really sort of stunning yeah, that, um, and it, and it kind of crosses humiliating, right? I mean, I mean, unfortunately, unfortunately, it's the stigma it's the attached stigma. to it. So I just, whether I'm talking to someone that's 80 or someone that's 18, I see that across the spectrum. I try to just approach it in a very sort of standardized fashion. We talk about it in plain talk. Um, I've, I've had women in the community say, oh my gosh, I've never heard someone talk about um, vaginas and bladders and rectums the way you talk about it. It's so nice to hear somebody just say, say these, the words. Just say the words. You know, And I think it's just something we need to, to focus on in our society. Um, so, you know, it's same thing with men. You know, when I was a trainee, you know, I didn't have any, really any pushback from the men. They just want somebody that's going to listen to them, take good care of their problems. Them. Yeah. But, you know, the reason that I really ended up in this field is as a third-year resident, um, I was out at Loyola in Chicago, and the urology and gynecology (laughs) chairs um, who had this foresight, you know, it was really ahead of their, um, it was really insightful to bring a urogynecologist on and train the urology and the gynecology residents in this field. So that's when I got interested. I started seeing the breadth and depth of what we could do for female pelvic floor disorders, all the different surgeries and non-surgical treatments, and I really fell in love with it. Well, this is fascinating, Leslie. Uh, Right now, we're going to have to take a short break for Medical Minute. Please stay tuned to learn more about urogynecology and the pelvic floor. Breast cancer is the most common cancer in women. In Connecticut alone, approximately 3,000 women will be diagnosed with breast cancer this year and nearly 200,000 nationwide. But thanks to earlier detection, non-invasive treatments, and novel therapies, there are more options for patients to fight breast cancer than ever before. Women should schedule a baseline mammogram beginning at age 40 or earlier if they have risk factors associated with breast cancer. Clinical trials are currently underway at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers such as Yale Cancer Center and its Milo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven to make innovative new treatments available to patients. Digital breast tomosynthesis or 3D mammography is transforming breast screening by significantly reducing unnecessary procedures while picking up more cancers and eliminating some of the fear and anxiety many women experience. This has been a Medical Minute brought to you as a public service by Yale Cancer Center and Smilo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven. 
More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Center Answers. This is Dr. Stephen Gore, and I've been talking tonight with my guest, uh, Leslie Rickey, about urogynecology and the pelvic floor. Uh, Leslie, you've gotten me sort of more interested in the pelvic floor than... uh, well, probably than I ever even really thought about it, which was not very knew. much, right? But um, how would I know? I mean, I, I understand the the, the um, leaky urine issue seems like a pretty obvious issue that people know about. Like, what other symptoms do people would people have to think, gee, maybe maybe my pelvic floor needs investigation? So you're absolutely right. I think the urine leakage is obvious. Um, there's something called stress incontinence is when you cough or sneeze you leak or exercise and then there's the urgency incontinence which uh, folks seem to be a little more familiar with because there's medicine that can treat this so you see it in magazines and those are the people that do the gotta go gotta go Um, they might not be able to hold it they might leak on the way to the bathroom Hmm. there's also a lot of women though that have uh, this complex called overactive bladder where they just they have urgency and frequency so they might not leak but they know where every bathroom is everywhere they go they know I know where. someone like that yes all of us do and the thing is women live like this for decades and there are so many easy treatments for this so you don't need to toilet map you don't need to know where every bathroom is you don't need to get up four times at night there are very effective lifestyle modifications sometimes medications there's actually a whole area called pelvic there are pelvic floor physical therapists who are physical therapists who have taken women's health courses so they do treatments centered around the pelvic floor um, that can be very effective in in treating a lot of these disorders. Uh, There's also uh, something called pelvic organ prolapse. This is when the vagina starts to herniate, you know, down there, as many women will say. And and this main symptom is a vaginal bulge. They will feel something coming out, and it really is like a hernia. Um, And so that's, uh, other women have some pain issues, you know, either pain with with intercourse or painful voiding. Uh, Recurrent urinary tract infections is something we see a lot. And then finally, around the, the bowel and rectum, some women develop stool leakage. So if you think urinary leakage has a stigma around it. Mm. The, the, the women with bowel leakage um, are really reluctant to come in and seek treatment, and we have some really effective treatments for them as well, so I would encourage them to come in. And a lot of women, you know, on the other end of the spectrum, uh, constipation and difficult bowel movements or painful bowel movements. So we really have all the tools here to evaluate and, and treat these disorders. And what about sexual dysfunction? You mentioned painful intercourse. Are there other sexual problems that relate to the pelvic floor or not really? Is vaginismus, uh, um, vaginal spasm, is that related? Not really. Yeah, no, no. Yeah. So there's a couple different ways that sexual function um, can be affected. So one is just after childbirth, a lot of women just feel like things are different. Everything things are, is different. Right, everything's different. A lot of times it is, now sometimes it's a pelvic floor muscle weakness. So they just feel like everything's coming out They and they feel like everything has gone wrong. Their bladder's not right, their bowel's not right, their vagina's not right, sex is different. And so actually those women um, that are young and right after childbirth, they are the perfect uh, demographic or age group to come in and start doing pelvic floor muscle therapy. We're not going to do probably any surgery at this point unless they're done with childbearing, but just some generalized pelvic floor muscle rehabilitation can be really effective. 
<laughs> um, also, on the other, but some people also develop spasms, like you said, and that's something else that can be treated with pelvic floor physical therapy. The muscles are in spasm, just like you might get a, a muscle spasm in your back, like a Charlie horse. Like a Charlie horse, the same thing can happen in these pelvic floor muscles. People just it sounds think horrible. That it's the bladder and the vagina down there, but it's actually surrounded by muscles. It is horrible. So, um, and then as women age and estrogen levels decrease, they can actually get a little bit of thinning and irritation of. Uh, more the vaginal lining, and so that can sometimes lead to uncomfortable intercourse too. And there are many women I see um, who are really interested in maintaining their 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 sex life and intimacy, and um, they've either stopped, you know, be, because of painful. these disorders, or too dry, or doesn't feel, you know. And it's really it's really a shame because we. Uh, we can really effectively help with those issues as well. Hmm. So, how do you evaluate these problems? I mean, um, obviously, it's not an easy area to examine, I suppose, but maybe it is. Maybe I'm just. Uh... No, but, well, part of it is just taking a really careful history. Good history, that's As what I, I was thinking. I, I mean, I know all of us doctors do that. We learned at the very beginning. Well, we're told to do it. History of present illness. Um, but when you're dealing with quality of life disorders and, um, you know, how it's affecting what activities someone is um, avoiding or not doing anymore, you have to be really careful that you are figuring out what their goals are. And that can vary based on somebody's age, their um, what kind of work they do if they're at home, um, what, the, what their goals are, if they just want to exercise more. So you have to be really careful because, like I said, some of the treatments, for example, stress incontinence, um, if someone needs a surgery, there's a sling we can do. It's outpatient. The surgery is simple enough. However, you have to also make sure that they don't have too many overactive bladder symptoms. You have to balance and triage your care because doing the sling could make those other symptoms worse. So you just mm. have to be careful that way. Take a really careful inventory of symptoms, what they want to fix. And then when you do your pelvic floor exam, it's not just, you know, like when you go into your gynecologist, you get the pap smear, you get the bimanual. We actually really carefully palpate all the muscles. We assess the strength. Many women think they're at home. There goes, uh, they, they say, oh, yeah, I'm doing those kegels. I do kegels. I've been doing them for 20 years, and they're not working. Right. And I examine them, and they're actually not doing it. They think they're doing it, but they're not. So, so you can examine the pelvic floor oh, yeah. muscles through the vagina? Is oh, that yeah. how you, wow. Yep. Uh, we can also assess for any tender spasmy areas for sure. strength. We can assess the quality of the tissues, whether there's any um, atrophy or thinning. And then uh, really importantly, what their support is like. If they have any of that vagina starting to come down again, um, which may affect where we go with our treatment. Mm -hmm. You don't need to scan people or anything like that. Usually. Very uncommonly. We don't have to use a lot of x-rays or anything like that. Sometimes for bowel disorders we do. Uh, sometimes depending on the urinary tract symptoms, we need to take a look into the bladder with a small camera called a cystoscopy. We do that right in our office. Uh, we use that very judiciously, so I don't want people to get scared off, thinking if they step a foot in their office, they're going to get their bladder right. scoped. But we do have to do it sometimes. Um, and then finally, we have some bladder testing called urodynamics that we do that can help us uh, really know what the bladder and the urethra are doing. It helps guide our treatment sometimes. Mm -hmm. And what kind of surgeries are involved if people need surgery? You mentioned the sling to deal with stress incontinence. Yeah. So if somebody's tried uh, the pelvic floor muscle therapy and they either can't do it or it hasn't helped, uh, there's also an office treatment called periurethral bulking, 
where if you go in with a little camera, just like um, I compare it sometimes to women, they collagen or fillers, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we can fill up the opening to the bladder so it's a little bit tighter and it's harder for the urine to leak out. That can be done right in the office. There's actually something called a pessary or incontinence ring. They still go, use that, huh? Oh, we use them a lot. Uh, we use them for prolapse and for incontinence. And it's a nice, especially for, say, someone uh, leaks only when they play tennis or only when they have a cold. They might not want to put themselves through a surgery because it's very episodic. So these incontinence rings are silicone rings. They can be taught to put them in and out of the vagina, not dissimilar to a tampon. And they don't feel it when it's in. And it can really effectively um, control the urine leakage during, mm. during those episodes. But if someone's really having it all the time, they say... Um, this is something I hear a lot. I, I go to the bathroom right before I exercise, and my pad is just soaked at the end. Or I get out from my run, and halfway into it, I need to go back and go to the bathroom. Or I'm out on the golf course, and it's running, you know, all these things. So sometimes a surgery is indicated if they want to, right? It's I never tell somebody they must have this. But if they do want it, the, these slings, they can be... There's two ways to do it. There's one where you can use some of your own tissue that's a little more involved and involves a, a lower abdominal incision. And then there's an outpatient surgery that uses a little uh, strip of material. And it goes underneath the urinary tube. The whole thing, when we do the outpatient procedure, takes about 30 or 45 minutes. Fascinating. Same day, it has um, effectiveness rates of about 85% and patient satisfaction of 90%. Um, I really I can't tell you how many times I hear... Um, not not just with the surgery, but even with some of the other simple treatments we have, like the exercises. I wish I had done this 10 years ago. I can't believe I waited so long. Uh, and why women wait, I, you know, I don't know. I, I think it's sometimes women tend to prioritize their health at the bottom. And this has been shown in studies. Um, actually, the first, top, top la layer is kids and then pets. And then partners, <laughs> and then partners underneath the pets, <laughs> and then like for uh, sure, for then, sure that <laughs> anybody that has a pet knows what I'm talking about. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and then elder care, and then their own care. So it's a combination of uh, you know kind of societal myths around no effective treatments. I think a fear that there's only surgery. Um, other other myths floating around that it's common. Yeah, know. I think what you said about just people assuming that this is just what happens as you age, I just think there seems to be a lot of that, I would think. Uh, yes, there, there, there is quite a bit. And it's, it's also, you know, I, I do applaud the pad industry, you know, the poise pads, because they've really made it a national dialogue and yeah. they've demonstrated that it affects women across their lifespan. It's not just older women. So I do like that. The one thing that's a little bit distressing is that the pads don't halt the progression, and I think they don't take away the fact that you're still thinking about it. You're having to manage it instead of getting a treatment that takes it away. Sure. So you're able to resume your activities. I mean, so so it does help if you have a little bit of leakage. But I think uh, one in three women that have monthly leakage uh, will progress to weekly leakage within a few years. So it, it doesn't just stay there. So if you're just wearing pads and you're thinking, oh, I'm handling it, it's fine, I can go to the gym now, it's much more treatable at those early stages. Mm -hmm. So if you wait and wait and wait, and all of a sudden it's weekly, and, and this is what I hear, oh, over the last year I've upsized my pads. Now I'm getting the bigger pads. Now the pads aren't holding it. Now, so really the time, I mean, I think they should really be coming in and asking questions about how to best treat this. Pads are good to start with, and they're a good, I guess, kind of Band-Aid, but they don't treat the leakage. Mm -hmm. 
And do you treat men with these problems, or is that a whole different? That's a whole different area. I, there are people that treat men with these issues, and the pelvic floor. So men tend to, as they get older, they will develop overactive bladder symptoms, um, urgency and frequency and urgency incontinence. That happens in both sexes. But like the stress incontinence, the, the leakage with coughing, that really only happens in men that have had a prostate surgery. So right. the numbers a... are much smaller. I'm not saying it's not an issue and not distressing, much smaller. Uh, so there, but there are people, you know, in our urology department that. that specialize in that. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, Leslie, you had mentioned. Uh, I know you're going down to uh, your former haunts of Maryland uh, this weekend, but you you mentioned to me uh, before we were chatting that that you have research that's involved with with folks down there. Well, can you tell me a little bit about what that's about? Yeah, that that's really exciting. So there is an NIH and NIDDK, which is sort of the um, National Institutes of Health. National Institutes right. of Health and their urinary um, division. Branch. Let's just say that bladder branch, bladder kidney branch. Uh, they have that's sponsors. the K in NIDDK, right? It's kidney. <laughs> the other, yeah. A whole bunch of things in there that are lumped together, but they have been kind enough. It's to, government bureaucracy. Uh, that's that's right. Um, and actually, there's been a couple of co-sponsors, not not just the NIDDK, but some other um, uh, founding funding agencies are able to pull together this prevention study, which is really innovative uh, because these prevention studies don't get funded at the national level very often. Treatment studies do, and like basic science, but it's called the PLUS Consortium, and it's prevention of lower urinary tract symptoms in women across their lifespan. So just like we know about, there's there's been decades and decades of, of research about heart health. Mm -hmm. And we know that, you know, or we think we know, we should follow a low cholesterol diet and low sodium and exercise. There's virtually no information about what bladder health is, uh, what the risk factors Cranberry are. Cranberry juice. How can we... <laughs> Maybe, but that has a lot of sugar in it. <laughs> That's just for the urinary tract infections. And in fact, I try to get my patients on cranberry supplements because they're just chugging all this cranberry juice I with you know the sugar or the sugar substitute in it. Uh, so, so this is something. It's, it's a multi-center consortium. We were picked to be one of seven clinical centers across the United States. Um, so it's a great multidisciplinary team of clinicians, nurses, epidemiologists, um, designed to look at these lower urinary tract symptoms uh, from a public health perspective because there is such a huge financial, societal, and individual burden of lower urinary tract symptoms in women. Dr. Leslie Rickey is Associate Professor of Urology and of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Sciences at Yale School of Medicine. We invite you to share your questions and comments. You can send them to canceranswers at yale.edu, or you can leave a voicemail message at 888-234-4YCC. And as an additional resource, archived programs are available in both audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We'd like to thank the Yale Cancer Center for providing production support for this program, and we'd also like to thank Renee Gaudette, Emily Fenton, and the staff of the Yale Broadcast and Media Center. I'm Bruce Barber, hoping you'll join us again next Sunday evening at 6 for another edition of Yale Cancer Center Answers here on WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas.